As we open God's word, let's ask him to bless it. Father, your hands have made us and fashioned us. Give us understanding now that we may learn your commandments. Let your steadfast love comfort us according to your promise to your servants. Let your mercy come to us that we may live, for your word is our delight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may now take your seats. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 4. And it's that prophetic book right after Daniel and just before Joel. And it's in Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 to 19 that we'll be looking at. And uh, whenever I'm given the opportunity to uh, preach in the mornings here, I've been picking up where I left off in Hosea. And uh, the last time we looked at that wonderful picture of redemption in chapter 3, and it ended with an amazing promise of hope, right? That even though the Lord could have left us enslaved in sin like Gomer, we're reminded that it was the Lord who pursued the Gomers like us. It was He who demonstrated the cost of His unconditional love by giving us His only Son who willingly sets us free from the bondage of sin and death to now the bondage of His steadfast love in Christ Jesus. And so, beloved, that's the overarching promise of grace that we must never forget because even though God's people in the story are being judged, we will continue to, be, we will continue to see them being judged throughout the book. And so starting in chapter 4 till the end of the book in chapter 14, um, they are still not left without the promise of restoration in the Messiah. And even in chapter 4, we'll focus primarily on judgment. And so remember that overarching promise of grace that we've heard in the first three chapters. And so starting from chapter 4, verse 1, people of God, hear now God's Holy Word. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. 
They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cold prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Bethaven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in the, in the broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Perhaps for most Christians today, chapter 4 wouldn't be their first choice for a quick and easy devotional read, right? Because, I mean, it, it isn't comfortable, isn't it? It's, it's one of those passages that peels the layers of our hearts to be painfully exposed and examined in order to receive the remedy. And so perhaps if you aren't familiar with reading prophetic passages that are primarily judgment, it might be tempting to gloss over it. Or maybe we would have been content to end our reading of Hosea in chapter 3. Since it ended with this clear promise of hope and restoration. Yet why does the Lord continue to pronounce a series of judgments for the majority of this book? And and why does he pick up judgment again in chapter 4? Well, I, I think the Lord knows the hearts of his people better than anyone else. He knows what Israel needed to hear. He knows that they are a forgetful people. He knows that we, that we are a forgetful people. A stubborn people who have a tendency to forget God and choose disobedience. And so in chapter 4, we see this really ongoing theme of spiritual whoredom among God's people. And, and the prophet introduces lawsuit language, right? When he declares in verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy. And a controversy there is that noun which could be uh, translated a charge or, or legal dispute against the inhabitants of the land. And so notice the legal overtones as if God has Israel on trial where he conducts a prosecution case to reveal their charges. And, and what are the charges, right? The Lord reveals... That there, that there is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. 
And we've seen that the punishment for covenant, covenant unfaithfulness is really the destruction of God's people, isn't it? Right? The, it is the consequence for violating that national covenant. And the only hope, beloved, that we must remember as we re- read the charges in our passage is to remember that overarching pronouncement of hope grounded upon the promise of grace. Right? Knowing that the promise of grace has already been revealed in the first three chapters of Hosea. That despite our unfaithfulness, that despite the charges pronounced to his people, beloved, that we have an advocate, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our mediator in God's courtroom. He is able to defend us and present us blameless before the judge. And so in a nutshell, it's, it's helpful to understand the hope of our passage in this way, right? That since Christ remedied all the charges against God's people, you now have the knowledge of salvation and the power to live out his righteous decrees. So let me repeat that, that since Christ remedied all the charges against God's people, you now have the knowledge of salvation and the power to live out his righteous decrees. And so there are three things I, I want us to think about in our passage. And I won't go through all the verses, but I think we can learn three things. First, we see the charges against his people. The charges against the leaders. And finally, the remedy to free his people. The charges against his people. The charges against the leaders. And finally, the remedy to free his people. First, we see the charges against his people, right? And we've seen that already in verse 1, in which the prophet reveals there is no faithfulness, steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. And then we go on to verse 2. We read there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And I I like how one commentator helps us see how the Lord not only charges his people with the sins of commission, right, but also the sins of omission, right? We see the sins of commission listed there in verse 2, which are basically straight out of the Ten Commandments, the, the, the Decalogue. It's those sins that we commit against God and neighbor, whether idolatry or swearing, lying, murder, Stealing, adultery, right? Those are the sins of commission, the sins that we commit. But then in verse 1, we see also the sins of omission, don't we? The prophet says there's no love, there's no faithfulness, there's no knowledge of God. And what is the sin of omission? Well, it's those positive commands that we omit or fail to do. Like, for example, you may say, well... Uh, you know, I, I don't steal. You know, that's not my practice. But as the Heidelberg Catechism 111 points out, that you fail to love your neighbor when you don't help the needy in their hardship. Right? Or you may say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. That's not my practice. But as Heidelberg 107 keeps us in check, it says you could fail to love your neighbor when you are not patient or Peace-loving, gentle, merciful, 
and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as you can, and to do good even to your enemies. And then, even Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount raises the bar even higher when he says that even anger in your heart against your neighbor is liable to judgment the same way as murder. And so really, we see how the Lord exposes the full nature of Israel's sin. He charges them in verse 2 that they have broken all bounds and there's murder everywhere. In other words, they have broken all the Lord's commandments. And as a consequence, we see how the land mourns in verse 3 because of Israel's defilement in the land that the Lord has given them. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 28 reveals that the covenant curse that is that the land will vomit the people out because they have made it unclean, right? And yet for us, beloved, living in the new covenant, right, even though we don't fear the threat of being banished from our homes, right, but the principle remains that when the law exposes our sin and guilt, what must we do but to come honestly before God in repentance, seeking the forgiveness of sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we realize that really the law doesn't give any wiggle room, right? It doesn't give any wiggle room to excuse our sin or to downplay our sin. For as we've seen that sin can, you can sin in both ways by commission or by omission. That your sin could be left in the thoughts of your heart. Yet God's holy law shows us the demand for perfect obedience, doesn't he? Because the law is a reflection of what? It's a reflection of his holy character. And to dishonor his holy character deserves curse. Galatians chapter 3, 10. And to be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul, as our catechism tells us. And that's why, beloved, when the Spirit convicts us of sin... Right? What must we do? We must repent. We must humbly come and seek his throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 4.16. And yet among the charges that seems, among them, that seems to really be the most detrimental is when the Lord reveals in verse 1 is this, that the people have no knowledge of God in the land. The people have no knowledge of God in the land. And he'll repeat again in verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Verse 14, A people without understanding shall come to ruin. And so there's a reason why the knowledge of God in our passage is significant. Because really, it's it's a foundational, it's foundational in order for God's people to live and to prosper and to conduct themselves in faithfulness. The Lord says elsewhere in Hosea chapter 6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so you see, beloved, to truly know God as he has revealed himself through his word is to know what he expects from his people. And as one theologian puts it, it's not merely or only the theological content of knowing God, But it's 
also the experiential knowledge of knowing God. Right? In which God's people are to know Him intimately. John Calvin says we must know God to understand our need for God. And yet the only way we can obtain true knowledge of God and to have that experiential knowledge of Him is, through, is only through our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Jesus says in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so we see that it's a, Christ, that, that it's a Christian's true knowledge Christian's true knowledge of God is only possible through faith in Christ, right? Faith in Christ who unites us more and more to himself. And it's only through him that we can be renewed in our minds to know God, right? To fear him and to, to, live, to live for him and to act according to his righteous decrees. And that's why a true knowledge of God is significant in the life of God's people, that without it, God's people will perish. But not only does the Lord charge Israel for having no knowledge of God in her passage, the Lord will also charge them for their idol worship. And he'll describe those acts of spiritual whoredom that take place in verses 12 to 14. In verse 12, we read, My people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. And uh, one scholar says that the piece of wood were like this kind of pillars which represented the, the goddess of Asherah, right? This goddess of Asherah at this Canaanite sacred site. And that smaller stick, the staff, would be used to thrown up in the air. And wherever it falls in the direction the stick lands, then that would be taken as this divine sign on how to proceed. And that's what Israel did, right? They inquired from these idols, these dead idols. And notice how the people here replace the knowledge of God while turning to seek the false knowledge from dead idols. Yet the Lord explicitly commands in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 9, that when you come into the land, that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations, right? You shall not practice divination, fortune-telling, sorcery. Instead, the Lord says, I will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, and I will put my words in his mouth to speak to them. And so we see that the Lord indeed used many prophets like Hosea and Amos to judge Israel and calling them back to return to the Lord. But not only do they inquire from dead idols, they also take their false worship up on the mountains, right? By burning offerings to false gods. And then shockingly, we see in verse 14, what did they do? They allowed Israel's women... Right? Their own daughters to participate in cult prostitution. Right? That's shocking. And, and so spiritual whoredom really has become not just figuratively or symbolic, but literal whoredom as part of their cultic worship. That even the Lord warns Judah in verse 15 to not go into the city of Gilgal nor 
go up to Bethaven to swear as the Lord lives, in which Bethaven literally means house of Israel, as opposed to Bethel, house of God. And so these were the cities that have become pagan cities. And to be using the Lord's name in these pagan cities in these pagan cities is an abomination. And that's why the Lord tells us why a people without understanding shall come to ruin. A people who have no knowledge of God will seek to do what is right in their own eyes. But not only do we see the charges against God's people, we see that the Lord reveals the charges against their leaders, right? They're against their leaders in verses 4 to 11. And the two leaders being accused here are Israel's priests and prophets. But primarily the Lord will address the priests in this section in where we read in verse 4, Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. And then in verse 5, You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. And mother there is kind of like a symbolism of Israel, right? First of all, who are the priests here? Well, we're not told whether they came from the Levitical priesthood according to the law of Moses. But as one commentator points out, we have good reason to believe that these were most likely non-Levitical priests. In other words, uh, they weren't a legitimate priests according to the Lord's standard. In fact, if we look back in Israel's history, we see at the beginning of the nation split between Israel in the north and Judah in the south, uh, that King Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 13, it says, he did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again from among all the people, and then anyone who would, anyone who would, he would ordain to be priests of the high places. And so you see, these priests could have been anyone chosen from Israel's corrupt kings, in which it was no longer the Lord's word as the only standard for worship, but it has become the standard of man. And so these priests were illegitimate. And Jeroboam, at the beginning of his reign, makes the wicked decision to cut off the access for God's people to go down to Jerusalem, which is the legitimate place of worship, where the legitimate priesthood is at. And it said, what does he do? But he establishes pagan worship centers, right? In the cities of Bethel and Dan, each having in those cities this golden calf from top to bottom surrounding the region, and each, each of these uh, pagan worship centers were designated illegitimate priests to lead it. And so these were the new places where uh, worship took place as a place, the true place of worship in Jerusalem. And so since these so-called priests among God, among the people also played the role as teacher, right? They played the role as teacher in this religious community, and we see that because they possess no knowledge of God. And, and God's people will not be taught the knowledge of God. And the consequence is that therefore God's people will not be taught his righteous decrees. And this is why the Lord makes the charge to the priests in verse 6. My people are destroyed 
for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. And the priests there, in fact, took advantage of the people. For we read in verse 8, They fed on the sin offering of my people. They are greedy for their iniquities. And so we see that the priests would facilitate, really, these offerings, ensuring that they gain as much as they can from the people who made these offerings. And we see because of their evil ways, the Lord in verse 19 says, I will punish them and repay them for their deeds. And so that was pretty heavy, wasn't it? And so at this point, what hope can there be for God's people right after the Lord has revealed the long list of charges, right? Which will continue throughout the rest of the book. What hope can there be for his people and for us who see ourselves just as sinful and unfaithful as the nation of Israel? For if we're honest with ourselves, we too are not immune to commit the same spiritual whoredom. For we too are prone to go after other gods of our own imagination. We're prone to be tempted to chase the idols of our hearts and be lured by the sinful flesh, the world, and the devil. And so where do we place your hope for deliverance? The only answer, beloved, to our sin problem and the charges against us is our Lord Jesus Christ, amen, who came in the fullness of time to remedy the charges against us, right? To be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5. To be our perfect prophet, priest, and king who became our last sacrifice, our perfect teacher and ruler governing us by his word and spirit. He is the one, beloved, who advocates for us before the judge and takes away the charges against us while accepting the penalty of those charges, right? Granting us this perf- his perfect record as if we have never sinned. It's like that vision of Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua stands before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments, and Satan standing at his right hand, taunting him, accusing him. But just when he thinks he has pronounced the guilty verdict, the angel says, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure garments. Isn't that amazing? Which is a picture of Christ who clothes us with his righteousness. And so finally, beloved, may we meditate upon that wonderful picture of grace that even though we're weak and fail in the Christian life, we have a mediator and intercessor who already took our iniquity and willingly accepted the penalty on our behalf while clothing us in his righteousness because of his steadfast love and promise which will never be broken forever and ever. And may we trust in him who redeems us from the bondage of sin and death. Amen. Let us pray. And I'll be using once again that wonderful prayer from John Calvin as he meditated on this passage. 
Grant, Almighty God, that since we are at this day as guilty as the Israelites of old were, who were so rebellious against your prophets, grant that being moved at least by the warnings you give us, may we humble ourselves before your face and not wait until you put forth your hand to discipline us, but on the contrary, strive to anticipate your judgment. And that being, at the t- that being at the same time surely convinced that you are ready to reconcile us to, to us in Christ. May we flee to him as our mediator. And that relying on his intercession, we may not doubt, but that you are ready to give us pardon. Until having at length put away all sins, we come to that blessed state of glory, which has been obtained for us by the blood of your Son.